2: Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show Podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on ninety three point nine KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show.
3: Hey, good afternoon and welcome to the Wednesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us. James Blind is producing Clark Hilton Engineering. Dan Rice has given us the use of his office for the sake of the cause. Hey, we're glad to have you with us. We've got a couple of things I want to let you know about right up front. We'll be talking with Jonathan Butcher. He's a senior policy analyst for the Center for Education Policy at the Heritage Foundation. We're going to talk about what parents need to know about schools reopening. The President's Coronavirus Council, along with the Secretary of Education, had a press conference, a rather lengthy press conference earlier today, about how schools will be opening in the fall how that's going to happen, whether or not there's sufficient resource, and if uh, states and local um, uh, areas are going to cooperate. All a big question. We'll talk with Jonathan Butcher about that. We'll also have a classic interview with Than Bennett, My Fame, His Fame, Aiming Your Life and Influence Toward the Glory of God. That's coming up also in the 5 o'clock hour. First, a look at some of the day's headlines. Hundreds of students at the University of California at Berkeley are privately discussing a plan to create a dummy course. The bogus class is allegedly being designed solely to help international students on F-1 student visas avoid deportation under new U.S. Immigration and Customs Enforcement Regulations, or ICE. And the students claim at least one faculty member is on board. Well, the plan, which would likely um, fall afoul of the law against immigration fraud, if enacted, was reportedly hatched hours after ICE announced on Monday that foreign students in the U.S. are required to take some in-person instruction, or they may not be able to uh, legally remain in the country. Berkeley students are creating a one-unit in-person student-run class to help international students avoid that deportation due to the new regulations, according to the Berkeley Urban Studies student writing a now-deleted tweet, which was um, archived by Google. Uh, The tweet, which was shared uh, with more than 25,000 Uh, Before it was taken down linked to a longer post stating that a member of the UC Berkeley community had uh, found a faculty member who will sponsor uh, this this apparent class. The post noted that a syllabus was being crafted and that the course was only for students who are international and need a physical competent uh, component rather, to remain in the United States. So the longer post had been shared hundreds of times on various UC Berkeley related social media groups. But again, now it has been taken down and other related developments. Uh, the secretary of education, DeVos, says kids have to continue learning. Schools will be opening. And the vice president on uh, the pre- on the president and his push to open schools says we can't let our kids fall behind academically. The president has vowed to pressure governors to open schools in the fall. Meanwhile, Ilhan Omar apparently paid some $878,000 to her new husband's consulting firm, with whom she uh, vowed she was not having any kind of a relationship. When the U.S. Uh, representative got ma- uh, remarried in March following her divorce, the Minneapolis or Minnesota uh, Democrat tried the uh, not with a man who was a member of her political consulting team. Well, now campaign data show that she has uh, paid him. Uh, His consulting firm, a total of $878,000 since 2018, including $189,000 just weeks after the couple announced that they were husband and wife, according to the New York Post. Now, in the first quarter of this year, his uh, E Street Group has received more than $292,000 from Omar's campaign for digital advertising, fundraising, consulting, and research services, the Star Tribune in Minneapolis. Uh, reported in April citing data from the Federal Elections Commission now this is relevant because payments for 2019 totaled more than $500,000 her campaign is her husband's firm biggest um, Client, by far, Open Secrets data suggests the uh, with E Street Group receiving about one third of all Democrats' campaign cash. The Washington Examiner re- uh, reported the arrangement is possible because of a 1960s federal anti-nepotism statute that prohibits members of Congress from hiring relatives for government jobs, but does not block uh, family members from doing campaign work. A former chief ethics lawyer for the administration of former President George W. Bush told the New York Post. It should not be allowed, attorney Richard Painter said. I think it's a horrible idea to allow it, given the amount of money that goes into these campaigns for special interests. Well, other lawmakers with spouses doing campaign work for them include U.S. Representative Mike Doyle, a Democrat from Pennsylvania, and U.S. Senator Kevin Kramer, a Republican from North Dakota. In uh, other news, Texas doctors uh, are ranking activities or have ranked activities posing the greatest threat for Um, contracting the coronavirus. We'll make reference to that later in the program. And Chief Justice Roberts apparently injured his head in a fall last month and was hospitalized, but for a very short period of time. 150 writers and academics have signed letters, uh, a letter condemning the cancel culture. The letter has some anti-Trump, anti-conservative rhetoric early in um, Early on in the document, despite the fact that these issues are all coming from the far left, J.K. Rowling uh, is among the writers, and Noam Chomsky is among others who have uh, signed the letter. John Sexton, in response, said, Despite all of the throat-clearing about the right, it's really the populist of this new cancel culture on the left that is the main target. The more the left tries to mainstream these ideas, the more people on the left split off and criticize them for doing so. The first wave of people rejecting... Uh, This uh, plan, because of the intellectual dark web. Uh, Now you have another larger wave of people, most of whom are progressives, who are expressing concern about the recent rise of cancel culture. In another uh, story, woke, now target, Hamilton, the play. Well, because uh, when there's no one left to eat, they will start to eat their own. Lin-Manuel Miranda responded by explaining all of the criticism is valid. He, of course, is the writer and one of the performers. The sheer um, tonnage of complexities and failings of these people I couldn't get or wrestled with um, but cut. I took six years and fit as much as I could into two and a half hours. A musical did my best. It's all fair game. He uh, went on to say they also went after um, Halle Berry for taking the role of a transgender man. She apologized for the error of temporarily unwoke ways. So be prepared to genuflect when you cross that uh, very, well, less than clear line. Uh, Betsy DeVos says schools will be fully operational in the fall. Kids have got to continue learning and schools have got to open up. There's got to be a concerted effort to address the needs of all kids and adults who are Fear-mongering and making excuses simply have to stop doing it and turn their attention to what is right for students and their families. As I mentioned the press conference earlier today, we'll address that in the 5 o'clock hour with Jonathan Butcher, uh, what parents need to know about schools reopening. It's not set in stone at this point, but it is certainly now announced as, at least from the federal standpoint, a goal. Meanwhile, Washington State schools are going to let black students in first listed in their phase-in priority at the top of page 32 of their now-new manual. In case the office takes it down, the page can be found on Twitter. And the squad has announced legislation for reparations and the defunding of police, and it's not just reorganizing the police but defunding the police, in case you forgot how, um, how far to the left this particular group of uh, congresswomen are and china is using hong kong we're being told as a tool to force companies to toe the party line the new law imposing uh, imposed rather from beijing threatens um, to Uh, Up to life in prison for anyone charged with secession, subversion, terrorism or collusion with vaguely defined foreign foreign forces. On Monday, the new Committee of Safeguarding National Security released 116 pages of rules that aren't subject to judicial review. They list broad new police powers, including the ability to conduct warrantless searches, seize property, investigate suspects, intercept communications, freeze assets and prevent people from leaving Hong Kong. Meanwhile, the former vice president, now Democrat uh, presidential candidate, uh, should make um, absurd demands to avoid debates. That's what one commentator, Mr. Friedman, suggests, not his exact words, but definitely the point. He opens by admitting, I worry about Joe Biden debating Donald Trump. You can find that full article in The New York Times. There's also a theory that if Biden gets elected, progressives will work to push him out of office. Again, theories are just that until there's actually an election He becomes the president and there's an effort to push him out of office. Well, BMW customers are forced to pay a subscription fee for features they already have. For example, adaptive cruise control, lane keeping assistance, adaptive suspension and comfort features, a heated steering wheel. So in the future, if you buy a used BMW with heated seats, you may have to pay a subscription fee to activate those seats. What a world we live in. We're gonna take a quick break. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show, but we will be back. So stay with us.
2: You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on ninety-three point nine KPDQ.
3: Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show, anticipating a conversation with Jonathan Butcher later in the five o'clock hour. We'll talk about what parents need to know about schools reopening. And we'll also hear from Fan Bennett, my fame, his fame, aiming your life and influence toward the glory of God. All of that in the five o'clock hour. Again, turning to the news, the Trump administration on Tuesday started the process of officially withdrawing the United States from the World Health Organization, which would take effect in July of 2021, after President Trump repeatedly slammed the agency throughout the coronavirus pandemic for alleged uh, misinformation about the virus. Forbes reports that in April, Trump noted that the very China-centric agency really blew it. And as Forbes adds, the administration has also slammed the organization for allegedly criticizing his travel ban with the uh, White White House fact sheet claiming it made the disastrous decision to oppose travel restrictions from China and other countries, despite applauding travel restrictions within China itself, leading to further spread of the virus internationally. The U.N. uh, better be shaking in its boots, some suggest. FBI Director Christopher Wray on Tuesday warned Americans that uh, the Chinese government's theft of American information is taking place on so large a scale, suspected incidents make up nearly half of his bureau's counterintelligence cases. According to Fox News, Director Wray revealed uh, the uh, nearly 5,000 active FD- FBI counterintelligence cases currently underway across the country, almost half are related to China. And at this very moment, China is working to compromise American health care organizations organizations Organizations, pharmaceutical companies, and academic institutions conducting essential COVID 19 research. If you're an American adult, it is more likely than not that the Chinese have stolen your personal data. The Supreme Court ruled in favor of the Little Sisters of the Poor and freedom of religion in the Obamacare contraception case announced earlier today. And President Trump is pushing to reopen schools with the coronavirus outbreak, vowing to pressure governments, uh, governors rather, to do so. Meanwhile, the Secretary of Education, Betsy DeVos, is looking very seriously at withholding federal funding from schools that refuse to open. The Justice Department has unearthed more notes from Peter Struck and others in the Flynn case and congressional Democrats. Democrats' uh, privilege, Uh, Ilhan Omar, was paid $878,000 to her new husband's consulting firm. Well, they can't compete. That's what the U.S. is saying. Flex's uh, bombers that can strike the mainland of China – pointing out that they have the artillery to do so. And the U.S. is looking at banning TikTok and other Chinese social media, Mike Pompeo says uh, earlier today. The commander of the U.S. Central Command is seeing smaller but enduring troop presence in Iraq as well. Well, the World Health Organization acknowledges evidence emerging of airborne spread of the virus, which they had denied earlier. And scientists are warning a potential wave of COVID-19 linked to brain damage. Texas doctors rank activities posing the greatest risks for contracting the virus. Time permits. We'll take a look at that in today's program. An economic number suggests a recession is on its way out the door. The Washington Redskins merchandise pulled from Walmart, Target and Dick's Sporting Goods reflects what uh, conversations are now being uh, held among team leaders. And Christopher Columbus, the statue was removed from California's woke capital rotunda. George Soros backed DA is charging uh, a couple with hate crime for painting over a Black Lives Matter uh, banner on public property. Selective outrage? will still no consequences from Philadelphia Eagles for Deshaun Jackson's anti-Jew posts, which he has since apologized for. Tennessee Churches has donated $1,000 to each member of the local police department amid the defund calls. Well, in devastating blow, Israel was set back. Uh, They have set back, rather, Iran's nuclear program some two years. And Angela Merkel is looking east to the communist Chinese as ties are fraying between Germany and the U.S. Hong Kong's uh, tough top cop is overshadowing the embattled leader uh, as the chi comms crack down. And no, Governor Cuomo, New York's nursing home carnage is your fault. At least that's what the New York Post is arguing. Yesterday, he threw his staff under the bus saying that, well, it wasn't his fault. Um, Colin uh, Colin Kaepernick knows social justice pays better than the NFL. And uh, for the record, no, the French Revolution was not a good thing. The Daily Signal points out that while some are pointing to that as a revolution worth repeating, no, it wasn't a good idea. Well, on this day in history 1947, the Roswell Daily Record, a New Mexico newspaper, quotes officials at the Roswell Army Airfield saying as they had recovered a flying saucer that crashed onto a ranch, officials they uh, then say it was actually a weather balloon. To this day there are those who believe what fell to earth was an alien spaceship carrying extraterrestrial beings. 1796, the first American passport is issued. 1889, the first issue of the Wall Street Journal is published. And in 1950, President Harry S. Truman names General Douglas MacArthur commander in chief of the United Nations forces in Korea. Truman would um, fire MacArthur. Uh, for insubordination some nine months later. 1994, Kim Il-sung, North Korea's communist leader since 1948, dies at age 82. And in 2011, former First Lady Betty Ford dies in Rancho Mirage, California, at age 93. On this day in history, also in 2011, Atlantis thunders into orbit on a cargo run that would close out the third decade U.S. space shuttle program. And finally, 2015, on this day in history, a technical glitch causes the New York Stock Exchange to stop trading for nearly four hours. They did eventually recover, thankfully. Two big victories for religious freedom in two separate rulings today. The U.S. Supreme Court delivered important victories for religious liberty, one, alas, much less definitive than the other. In Our Lady of Guadalupe School versus Morrissey Baru, the court ruled by a vote of 7-2 to two that the First Amendment's religious clauses and the so-called ministerial exception that flows from them bar the courts from adjudicating employment discrimination claims by two elementary school teachers at Catholic schools. Justice Alito wrote the majority opinion. Six other justices joined his opinion. The Chief Justice... Thomas, um, Breyer, Kagan, Gorsuch, Kavanaugh, Justices Sotomayor, joined joined by Justice Ginsburg, dissented. The court ruling builds on its Hosanna Tabor ruling eight years ago. Two key excerpts, and I'm quoting, although these teachers were not given the title of minister and have less religious training than clergy, In the uh, teacher case, Hosanna-Tabor, we hold that their cases fall within the same rule that dictated our decision in Hosanna-Tabor. The religious education and formation of students is the very reason for the existence of most private religious schools, and therefore the selection and supervision of the teachers upon whom the school relies to do that work lie at the core of their mission. Judicial review on the way in which religious schools discharge those responsibilities would undermine the independence of religious institutions in a way the First Amendment does not tolerate tolerate. What matters at bottom is what the employee does, and implicit in our decision in Hosanna Tabor was a recognition that educating young people in their faith, inculcating its teaching and training them to live their faith are responsibilities that lie at the core of the mission of a private religious school. In the second case, the Little Sisters of the Poor versus Pennsylvania, the court ruled by the same 7-2 alignment that the Trump administration had the authority under the ACA to provide exemptions from the regulatory contraception requirements for employers with religious and conscientious objections. Uh, Justice Thomas wrote the majority opinion for five justices himself, the chief, Alito, Gorsuch, and Kavanaugh, Justice Kagan, joined by Justice um, Breyer, concurred in the judgment only. Justice Ginsburg, rather, joined by Justice Sotomayor, dissented. This victory for the Little Sisters does not bring an end to the litigation, however. As Alito observes in his concurring opinion, joined by um, uh, Gorsuch, the losing states uh, on uh, remand are all but certain to pursue their um, argument that the current law, the current rule is flawed on yet another ground, namely that it is arbitrary and capricious and thus violates the APA, the Affordable uh, Care Act APA. Alito sets uh, forth his uh, view that the Religious Freedom Restoration Act compels an exemption for the Little Sisters and any other employer with a similar objection. Um, to what has been called the accommodation to the contraception mandate. By contrast, Kagan, in her opinion, concurred in the judgment's uh, questions whether on uh, remand the exemptions can survive administrative law's demand for reasoned decision-making. So while the decision was made for the Little Sisters of the Poor, it will very likely see the light of day in terms of litigation at some point in the future. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back.
2: You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast is aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
3: You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. New numbers from the health authority. Apparently, there have been four new deaths in the state of Oregon, along with 217 new presumptive cases of COVID-19. Uh, according to uh, Coin TV, in addition to the daily numbers, uh, the Oregon Health Authority provided weekly statistics to its report that show infections continue to rise in the state of Oregon during the week of the 29th of June through the 5th of July. 1,910 new cases are reported, marking an increase of 51% over the previous week. now it's important to put that into perspective, the number of cases as opposed to the number of deaths. Now, according to the latest report, all four deaths uh, for uh, today uh, reported on Wednesday, I should say, had underlying conditions, including a 36-year-old man from Multnomah County who died three days after receiving a positive test. So uh, make note of that. In light of that, uh, the headline is that Multnomah, Clackamas, and Washington so reopening plans are on hold, according to the governor. Now, for businesses and residents in these three counties, hoping that Portland area counties would move into phase two of the coronavirus reopening this week, county leaders have a message. It ain't happening. OK, they may have said it's slightly different, but in fact, it may not happen for several weeks. We're now being told as Tri-County public health officials wait to see if the Fourth of July holiday weekend Generated another spike in cases, or a deterioration in the indicators that the state's health officials are monitoring to make reopening recommendations. Now, Governor Brown linked Multnomah, Washington, and Clackamas counties for reopening purposes because of their interconnectedness. Uh, Friday marked the 21st day threshold, the 21-day threshold since the governor approved Multnomah County to move into Phase One, where we remain which allowed limited seating at bars and restaurants, reopening of salons, gyms, other personal services, and gatherings of up to 25 people. That means each of these three counties could apply or, in Clackamas County's case, reapply uh, to move into Phase 2 on Friday, which further eases restrictions. But none of the counties is meeting the Phase 2 criterion at this point laid out by the governor and the Oregon Health Authority. So it appears that we are going to remain in place until further notice meanwhile in texas they've actually come up with a a a graph if you will a chart that tells us what activities put you at greater risk during the COVID-19 pandemic. Now, these are um, physicians from the Texas um, Medical Association. Uh, they have a COVID-19 task force, and the uh, committee that goes along with this on infectious disease, they've ranked the risks associated with certain activities. Uh, according to the Texas Medical Association, these activities included in the chart were ranked by physicians from their organization, the task force, and the Committee on Infectious Diseases. Uh, they said the physician experts were uh, were asked to assign a risk of one least risk to ten riskiest to each of the activities using the the criterion they had determine whether it's inside or outside proximity to others exposure time the likelihood of compliance and personal risk level now they were asked to assume that participants in these activities are following currently recommended safety protocols including wearing masks when possible so your risk factor may rise or fall if you uh, determine that you are not going to wear a mask or if you are not social distancing well low risk activities included uh, opening the mail which at one point we thought was a danger I've been Opening my mother's mail ever since, ordering restaurant takeout and pumping gasoline, while activities like grocery shopping, going for a walk and eating outside at a restaurant are ranked right in the moderate to low category. For those worried about touching things like gas pumps, mail or other items, uh, the Texas Medical Association recommended using hand sanitizer and washing your hands. Well, let me give you some idea of what the low-risk activities are. Opening the mail, getting a restaurant takeout, pumping gasoline, playing tennis, uh, going camping. Those are low-risk activities. Then you move to the moderate-low activities, grocery shopping, which we all must do from time to time or have done for us. Um, Going for a walk, a run, or a bike ride with others, uh, playing golf staying at a hotel or uh, or two for a night or two, um, sitting in a doctor's waiting room, going to the library or uh, a museum, eating in a restaurant outside, walking uh, through a busy downtown area, spending an hour at a um, playground. Now, these are moderate to low risk activities. And again, this is if you're wearing a mask and you're socially distanced. Now, there are moderate activities like having dinner at someone's uh, home other than your own, attending a a backyard barbecue, going to the beach, shopping at a mall, and so on. But the high risk—you might find these rather interesting: uh, eating at a buffet. I can't imagine who in their right mind at this point would eat at a buffet. Um, working at a working out at a gym, high risk. Uh, going to an amusement park, high risk. Even though um, Disneyland apparently has uh, reopened. Going to a movie theater, attending a, a large music concert, going to a sports stadium attending a religious service with one with 500 plus worshipers that's high risk on this chart going to a bar so it's rather interesting, and you can find online, just uh, Google the uh, Texas Medical Association, uh, their chart of COVID 19 risky behaviors. Kind of interesting. Meanwhile, Portland police and Multnomah County Sheriff's deputies have filed court documents that give a day by day accounting of their protest response over the last six weeks here in the metro area, including dozens of videos that show violence downtown, photos of broken windows to courthouses and businesses, and a list of more than 100 fires set. The estimated repair costs to public buildings approached $300,000 so far and $4.8 million in property damage to businesses. The inventory was among more than 100 pages that was submitted by the U.S. District Court, by the city and county, to answer a lawsuit filed by Don't Shoot Portland, the nonprofit group that seeks to further bar use of tear gas, pepper spray, foam-tipped rounds, and other less lethal weapons as crowd control measures At Now, I'm not sure what police officers are supposed to do if they don't have any non-lethal tools available to them when we're talking about $300,000 in damage to public buildings, $4.8 million in property damage to um, businesses. Now, this case is not about the thousands of people peacefully protesting. The deputy attorney uh, Naomi Sheffield wrote, it is also not about hateful words or anti-police protests. The city and the Portland um, Police Bureau support uh, protesters' expression regardless of content. Of course, peaceful should be inserted there. This case is about the ability of the Portland Police Bureau to respond to a nightly deluge of dangerous objects thrown and launched at them and at occupied buildings, nightly fires, widespread criminal activity. U.S. District Judge Marco Hernandez on the 9th of June issued a temporary restraining order Restricting Portland police from using tear gas except if lives or public safety are at risk. Public property was not part of that equation. Now he amended that order later in uh, June on the 26th adding less lethal weapons to the restrictions and outright banning the use of an ear splitting warning signal. So the devastation and damage done to public buildings and to private property apparently was not taken into consideration. Well, Don't Shoot Portland has asked the judge to sanction the city for allegedly violating his orders and extend the restrictions by granting a preliminary injunction. A hearing is set for Thursday and Friday. Uh, so lawlessness apparently is acceptable, and for a re- police response that has the potential to be at least um, slightly effective, is frowned upon in the city of portland god help us all meanwhile portland business owners are demanding city leaders take action to stop the violent protests that rocked downtown portland night after night after night after night monday morning city workers used pressure washers to remove graffiti from the multnomah county courthouse and other buildings streets and signs It's not all that effective, by the way. There's graffiti in many places, but especially on the base uh, that held an elk statue for more than 100 years and on the outside of the federal courthouse. Now, what the offense was to the elk, I'm not entirely sure. But for business owners, they're saying that um, the violence must stop. It doesn't make any sense, says one, as she stood inside an empty coffee shop with wood covering her windows, um, saying that this is, for us, absolutely devastating. It's got to stop. City leaders thus far have been unwilling to do what's necessary to make that a likely outcome. We have Justin Butterfield coming up in just a few moments. He's the deputy general counsel for First Liberty Institute. Uh, we're going to talk about the Supreme Court decision in the Little Sisters of the Poor versus Pennsylvania. The Supreme Court, as we mentioned earlier, has voted favorably uh, in support of the religious liberty of the Little Sisters of the Poor and others who are like minded. We'll talk more about that with Justin Butterfield, giving you a bit of that background if you have forgotten. It's been years and years since this whole thing began. And then after the top of the hour, we'll Talk with Jonathan Butcher, Senior Policy Analyst for the Center for Education Policy, on what parents need to know about uh, schools reopening. And finally, we'll hear from Fan Bennett, author of My Fame, His Fame, Aiming Your Life and Influence Toward the Glory of God. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show.
2: You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show Podcast. Is aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
3: Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, as I mentioned earlier today, the U.S. Supreme Court, they upheld efforts by the Trump administration to protect the religious conscience rights of the Little Sisters of the Poor. Now, you probably thought, hasn't this been resolved by now? Well, it's uh, not only protected their conscience rights, but that of thousands of organizations who are like-minded. The decision is a major victory for life, for the rule of law, and for religious liberty, of All Americans Well, joining us to talk about the decision for which the First Liberty Institute filed a, a friend of the court brief is Justin Butterfield. He's deputy general counsel for First Liberty Institute. Thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you for having me. Well, this certainly is a long overdue decision, but I don't want to assume that all of our listeners have followed this issue as closely as others of us have. Can you walk us through um, the uh, the issue that led to this court decision today?
1: Sure. So um, under the previous administration, the Department of Health and Human Services issued regulations under the, the Affordable Care Act, popularly known as Obamacare, that required insurance providers to provide certain types of coverage, um, including contraceptive coverage and including um, some contraceptives that many organizations viewed as abortifacients because the potential side effect was um, spontaneous abortion of the contraceptives. And so many religious organizations, either due to religious objections to contraceptives or due to abortifacients, objected to being required to provide insurance coverage in their, in their group insurance plan for these drugs and devices. And as you can imagine, um, they, they complained greatly to the previous administration about these, these, uh, this requirement, and the previous administration created a church exemption Um, So if you're a church, you are not required to provide this insurance coverage, but they refuse to provide a full exemption for religious organizations. So if you're an organization like Little Sisters of the Poor, which is a Catholic organization of sisters that provides care for people um, who are are frail, who are living their last days, um, and, and this group of nuns following their religious convictions just could not support providing contraception and abort patient coverage for for their employees. So they, again, objected that, you know, you provided a, an exemption for churches, but you should expand that to cover religious organizations like the Little Sisters of the Poor and like many thousands of organizations around this country who were not churches but still had deep, sincere religious convictions um, against providing such such drugs and devices. The previous administration refused to expand the exemption to... to provide a full exemption. Instead, they created what was called the accommodation. And under the accommodation, a religious organization could say, we're going to authorize um, our insurance company to provide this coverage, but we won't include it as a line item on our insurance bill, basically. And as you can imagine, for many religious organizations, that was insufficient. Mm -hmm. They um, couldn't say, well, just because we're not including it as a line item. You're still asking us to authorize our insurance provider to make these payments. So this led to a lawsuit um, and it led to a lawsuit both from the religious organizations as well as from certain, a separate lawsuit from certain religious for-profit companies, uh, most prominently Hobby Lobby, which many of your listeners may be aware of the Hobby Lobby litigation. This was all over the same issue. Uh, Well, that went up to the Supreme Court. Both of those cases, Hobby Lobby won theirs in the case of the Little Sisters, though, uh, there, was, there was a lot of confusion in the Supreme Court about what was required, and the government thought they could come to a solution that would appease groups like Little Sisters and other religious organizations. So the Supreme Court kicked it back. Um, the government then decided, well, they couldn't really come to a solution, and then the administration changed. The new administration issued a new rule that said, okay, we're going to expand an exemption like was provided to churches to all religious objectors and to people who have moral convictions about this. And as soon as they did that, um, states began suing them, suing the, the Department of Health and Human Services to stop the administration from, from recognizing these deep-seated religious convictions and, and rights of conscience. That's the case that's now gone up to the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court upheld the Trump administration's uh, two new rules that, that provide that, that protection for rights of conscience and religious conviction.
3: Well, it has been a long and storied back and forth with the appeals courts, with the Supreme Court, with the states, the Little Sisters of the Poor. And I really commend uh, this small group of very humble nuns whose work is with the dead and dying, uh, with those who uh, don't have many means for championing this issue for as long as they have. This has really been years, has it not?
1: It has been. It's been
3: almost nine years of,
1: as I said, up to the Supreme Court multiple times, back through through. Dozens of courts around the country, hundreds of lawsuits filed. It's time for this to be over. Um, And, you know, unfortunately, Supreme Court's opinion today probably doesn't completely resolve all the
4: issues, Mm -hmm.
1: but it it does uphold the, the Trump administration's new rule, at least for the time being. And um, I'm hopeful that we will soon see full, um, the full resolution of this matter in favor of the Little Sisters and the thousands of other similar organizations around the country.
3: Hey, you're absolutely right. The decision is not definitive in that it is uh, going to resolve any questions that might arise. Do you think it will require another case before the Supreme Court to ultimately lay this to rest? Uh, Or are we likely to see uh, just a continuation of the lower courts, the appeals courts, and so on, coming to different conclusions on this subject? What will be required in order to finally resolve this issue?
1: You know, I hope it doesn't require a return to the Supreme Court. Um, The the majority opinion of the Supreme Court is pretty clear that that, uh, the government followed the right procedures in issuing these new rules and expanding these conscience protections. Provide that full, uh, full church-style exemption to all religious objectors. So I'm hopeful that the lower courts, that if they have to look at this again in the future, they will take that language and they will see that no, the Trump administration actually did do this right. There aren't procedural problems with this. But I anticipate that we'll see litigation continue for at least a little while. And you never know what some judges might do.
3: Yeah, and also we're in an election year. A change of administration may also change the rules.
1: It's possible. Yes. Um, You know, it it would, I would certainly hope not. I would hope that um, any future administration would recognize that protecting rights of conscience just makes sense that we shouldn't force um, organizations like little sisters of the poor who are just trying to help people, um, you know, they're providing a lot of help in this pandemic and we shouldn't try to force them to violate their deeply held religious convictions. Um, But it's, it is a possibility. You're exactly right. And yeah. you know, if that happens, um, we'll, we'll be sure to cover it. And we, uh, we, we filed several lawsuits against HHS at First Liberty in the past when this has been an issue. And we'll continue to stand up for the religious freedom rights of all Americans. And I'm hoping that it doesn't come to that. But if it does come to that, we'll be there.
3: You are prepared. I don't want to let you go without giving you an opportunity to let our listeners know a little bit more about First Liberty Institute. Uh, as we find ourselves in the crosshairs of uh, government decisions that undermine our religious uh, liberty and freedoms, it's it's good to know that there are advocates standing by that can help. Tell us a bit about First Liberty Institute.
1: Sure. So First Liberty Institute is the largest religious liberty organization dedicated solely to defending religious liberty rights for all Americans. Um, we have Cases across the United States, you may have heard of, for instance, um, Coach Kennedy, up um, by, by y'all. Yes. Uh, a coach who was fired for kneeling with his students in silent prayer after games. Uh, we defend veterans memorials. We recently won at the Supreme Court defending a veterans monument in Maryland that was in the shape of a cross. So we have, we have cases defending religious liberty for all Americans all across the United States. You can find out about us at firstliberty.org. Uh, You can follow all of our cases there. And if you have an issue, if you see something where you think yours or somebody else's religious liberty rights are are being violated, uh, you can request legal help there and we can take a look at uh, whatever situations arise. So FirstLiberty.org.
3: Well, Justin, I so appreciate the work that you're doing and commend First Liberty Institute for standing in the gap on behalf of many Americans and their religious rights. Thanks so so much for taking the time to, to join us today. Thank you for having me. Really appreciate it. Justin Butterfield is Deputy General Counsel for First Liberty Institute. You can find more information at firstlibertyinstitute.org. Coming up, we've got news and traffic at the top of the hour. When we return, we'll talk with Jonathan Butler, Senior Policy Analyst for the Center for Education Policy, on what parents need to know about schools reopening. Will they or won't they? And who's going to be in charge, the federal government or local officials? All of that coming up after news and traffic. We'll be back. You're listening
2: to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
3: You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Well, as you know, the President's uh, Council on Coronavirus had a press conference earlier today to talk about how students would be invited back into the classroom. How do we do that? Is it safe? Lots of competing opinions, some of which are fueled by political. A partisanship. All of that said, however, what do parents need to know about schools reopening and how likely is it that that's going to happen? Well, here to talk with us about that is so I'm just going to start with the correct guest and the right subject. Jonathan Butler, Senior Policy Analyst for the Center for Education Policy at the Heritage Foundation, joins us to talk about what parents need to know about schools reopening. Mr. Butcher, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. Great to be with you. You know, there was a lot of back and forth today on whether or not it's in the best interest of students, their health and their education, or whether it's risky. And of course, there's that tinge of of political uh, uh, intrigue thrown into it all. First of all, your thoughts on what was said today about returning students to the classroom? Well, sure. Anytime that Washington's involved, there's going to be political intrigue, uh, especially with all of the division today. I would say that Uh, This
0: really isn't a decision for the federal government. This is a decision that needs to be made as locally as possible by state and local officials, between educators and and health officials. They need to be looking at uh, what's happening around them with cases, hospitalizations, um, as well as the needs of students in their local schools. And if there's an outbreak in one area uh, that would affect those schools, why then We should not keep schools open in another area, even in the same state, perhaps even in the same district where there isn't the same sort of uh, difficulty when it comes to handling the pandemic.
3: You're absolutely right that state and district officials must be the final arbiters of what's going to happen in their particular areas. Is there a national role to be played in all of this beyond uh, perhaps funding some of the elements necessary to make it safe for kids to return to the classroom if that decision is being made uh, across the country?
0: Well, two big things. First, I think, is to give families confidence that, uh, that the truth is being put out there when it comes to what's happening with the pandemic. Uh, they need to provide the clearest information that they can, and they need to do it in such a way that uh, families understand uh, what they're being confronted with. But then secondly, I think that they also need to um, let local uh, school officials, as well as state lawmakers, as well as families know that there are options, right? And there should be more of them. Um, This is a situation where uh, I think where schools are closed in some areas and are not planning to open on time, that state lawmakers, state lawmakers, and it's important that it be at the state level, uh, say, well, look, we're going to give families the opportunity to choose uh, a private school, or we're going to give them the uh, student funds that otherwise would have followed that child to their assigned school and let them use that money to choose from, you know, personal tutor, um, uh, education therapist, uh, private tuition, you know, what have you. So this is a great opportunity for, I think, an administration that has talked a lot about parent choice and education to once again make that issue front and center and, and position it in
3: a way that families understand that it is a solution for what we're facing right now. One of the things I found rather interesting in the press conference earlier today was the emphasis on the risk of kids remaining uh, in in the home or putting it perhaps a, a bit uh, differently for children not being in the classroom, which is the best environment for them to learn. Your thoughts on that aspect of it, the the emphasis that was put, at least by some of the speakers, on the dangers of children remaining in the home and apart from the education experience as well as the academic rigor and the oversight of educators to make sure those kids are all doing well. Well, I think the, what you said there really gets to the nuance of what the Mm -hmm. uh, American Academy of Pediatrics has said.
0: Now they have come out and said that they feel like schools should reopen and have students back in person, but they also gave as part of their reasoning that some students may not be safe in the home. Have to be very careful with this idea, right? We know that parents know what's best for their children. Of course, there are um, sadly incidents of, you know, abuse or or times when uh, a child's not in a safe place, but uh, this this issue of, of what's happening with reopening schools in the pandemic, it, it shouldn't obscure, right, that really the, the place where their kids should be safe and in the best environment is in the home. Schools should be a place where children can pursue truth and can learn, and so we need to make sure that they are doing that. I think it's equally as important, right, for us to acknowledge that it's possible that there are, and, and, and in fact, there are cases where students are not safe at home, well, there are also cases where it's not safe at school either. And so to say that uh, one is somehow superior to the other really kind of glosses over a, a very large subject with a lot of uh, details to it. I think the best thing that, that the AAP, you know, I think can do is to give parents confidence that, um, like you said, uh, children, young children, especially, are the least likely to be affected by the pandemic, based on the evidence we have so
3: far, which means that schools should be preparing to have them back in person. One of the large incentives, at least from a family's perspective, of trying to get children back into the classroom is that distance learning that was sort of an emergency foisted on many of them who were unprepared for that um, has not been a rousing success. Your thoughts on an alternative, if in fact uh, schools in some areas cannot reopen at this point or in the fall when most schools would would have uh, have started. Are we moving in a direction in which distance learning is improving to the point where at least for some, certainly not all students, um, can benefit by it? whereas in the current circumstance, there seems to be quite a a lag for some students who it, where it never got off the ground, they didn't have the technology and so on. And that's a great question. You are absolutely right. It was certainly uneven at best uh, around the country.
0: I think there were areas, especially in urban areas, uh, Chicago, Los Angeles, even across some states where students didn't log in at all uh, and teachers had difficulty finding students or getting work back that was assigned to them. So this, this um, uh, quick adjustment to online learning was not what anyone had really prepared for. And I think people need to remember that that's different than the full-time online schools that, that mm-hmm. families chose before the pandemic or the online learning that they you know, are deciding is the best situation for their child now. It's two, two very different things. Uh, I think that because districts took uh, had such a difficult time adjusting to providing online instruction, is all the more reason to figure out how we can get students back in person in the fall. Um, You know, this was, it was, like you said, kind of foisted on everyone. Uh, And and what it means now is that uh, schools need to do everything they can to make it safe and possible for students to come back. And, And last thought, if they don't, this is where we need to begin talking again about states providing access and opportunities for students to choose how and where they learn
3: if their assigned school is going to be closed absolutely absolutely this seems to me to be a teachable moment and a moment of opportunity if our eyes and ears are open what from your perspective do you think we can learn from this set of circumstances that, again, we were not really prepared for, but might give us some insight. And I think you just made reference to one of them, might give us some insight moving forward in terms of uh, educating young people across the country. Well, I think there are two. Uh, One is very practical, and that
0: is that the schools that had the least bureaucracy attached to them, so charter schools and private schools that were a little more nimble than district schools, were able to adapt quicker the changing conditions than large districts were a quick example in philadelphia they actually told teachers not to communicate with students until the district had figured out a plan that's that's silly right Mm -hmm. if educators are ready to go why are districts stopping them second thing is is that we happen to be just living through a very um nothing short of combative and divisive time with protests and riots uh, on tv every night And so parents had a very unique opportunity to talk about the meaning of everything that's happening to their children and see what some of the work they were being assigned in school. This is a unique opportunity for parents to get a hold of not just what their children are seeing and experiencing, uh, but also helping them to understand the world around them. Uh, And so parents should be taking advantage of that and and ready when kids do go back
4: to uh,
0: tell educators. Uh, you know, what they feel about uh, the
3: instruction that's being provided to their students. Yeah, yeah. I know there's a big emphasis, and rightly so, on economic recovery, getting people back to work uh, for their own sake and certainly for the sake of the economy. Is it possible uh, for the economy to come roaring back if children uh, are not invited back into the classroom in the fall, where parents are uh, required to continue to superintend in ways that may not allow them to return to the, the place of work? Oh, that's a, a big question, and I think, I think it will take time to sort, uh, mm-hmm. all, sort out everything it means
0: for the jobs that were closed, but then also the jobs that moved online and allowed families to work from home, uh, and whether that will offset this issue of students not being able to go back in some areas. I, I think the, the best thing that we can say is that it's going to be different from state to state which is why the recommendations and the procedures that states follow with their schools, it should vary according to their local conditions. I don't think that there's a blanket process where we can say, well, this will work for everyone. It just won't. Parents need to be empowered with with the ability to make choices. And uh, I think that for those that choose to homeschool, you know, wonderful if they feel like that's the right situation for them, but it's just not going to be for everyone. And so for those that can't do that, we have two working, you have parents, you have a single parent, you know, whatever the case may be, we need to make sure that those families have access to the same quality options as
3: those who um,
0: have have it already available to them.
3: Absolutely. Jonathan Butcher, thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciate your insight. My pleasure. Thank you. Again, Jonathan Butcher is a senior policy analyst for the Center for Education Policy at the Heritage Foundation, talking about what parents need to know about schools reopening. And we will certainly continue to follow uh, the conversation across the country and right here at home in the Portland metro area. Up next, we'll hear a classic interview with Fan Bennett, My Fame, His Fame, Aiming Your Life and Influence Toward the Glory of God. The book is published by Thomas Nelson. We'll be back.
2: You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast is aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
3: Eighty six percent of us use social media every day and nearly three quarters do so multiple times in the course of a day. Well, interestingly, people are using various platforms to get noticed. The overwhelming hunger for attention leads people to take chances or risks than ever would if they didn't have an audience. Well, Than Bennett is the director of government affairs at the American Center for Law and Justice. He says platforms like uh, and influence are accepted measures of success. We live for the sound of applause and the adoration of the crowd. Well, in his new book, My Fame, His Fame, Aiming your life and influence toward the glory of God, he suggests we have become so obsessed with being famous that many people are actually quite lonely. We try to be famous when we long to be known. It's a far better thing to be known than to be famous. We'll talk about the difference. Well, Fan Bennett is the Director of Government Affairs for the American Center for Law and Justice and is a regular on-air contributor to the daily syndicated radio broadcast, Jay Seculo Live, heard right here on KPDQ. He is the author of In Search of the King and is motivated to write by a belief that God calls those in all walks of life to draw others to a saving knowledge of Jesus. Fan Bennett, thank you so much for joining us.
4: Jane, thank you so much for having me. I think it's been a few years since we have talked, but I am um, delighted to be back. Thank you for having me.
3: Oh, absolutely. Where have you been? <laughs> <laughs> well, I've been on that uh, uh, Capitol Hill, Washington, D.C., just like you said. Yeah. I, I was
4: watching yeah. rundown there of the news and uh, those topics you were talking about, Georgine, those have been occupying my day.
3: Yeah, well, I'm surprised you have time to talk with us today. So I'm grateful that you, you've taken the time. Well, let's talk about what it means to proclaim the fame of God in our time, in a season of, of of life in which we are so preoccupied with our own fame.
4: Yeah, aren't we? You know, Georgine, I really think we have an obsession with fame in our culture, and uh, most of that obsession is wrapped up in a very negative. Uh, version of fame. It's the fame that we see around us. It's the fame that the superstar Madonna called. Uh, she said that she wasn't going to be satisfied until she was famous like God. And it's a fame that's wrapped up in platforms and likes and visibility and notoriety. And uh, Georgine, it's, it's it's a self-absorbed fame, and it's one that will destroy you in the end. Um, and and I, I was very concerned about seeing this obsession with fame in our culture, and it's really what led me to write this book. But really what I found when searching the scriptures, Georgine, is that I I really do believe that the reason we are so drawn to fame, even though we've distorted what it really is, is because we were created for fame, Georgine. Now it's not the fame that we've been talking about here. It's a fame that that speaks to the glory and the fame and the uh, power of our God. But it's the one that he talked about uh, to Isaiah in Isaiah 43, where he said, the people I formed, for myself that they may proclaim my praise. So i got to tell you, I I started writing this book really from a standpoint of concern about this obsession with fame. And what I really realized is it's not so much an aversion of fame er, that we should have. It's a redefinition, uh, uh, Georgine. because we were created, we were hardwired to be vessels that would uh, be able to acquire fame and channel fame and amplify fame the difference is we've been trying to do that for ourselves when we were created to amplify the fame of the creator. So um, it, it's a little bit of a reset of definition and it's, and it's kind of unlearning the fame we know and then reapplying it for the purpose with uh, which we were created.
3: It's another form of counterfeit that we should be quite familiar with uh, in this, uh, this life. What is it that you think people are looking for when they make themselves this, this focus of attention when they're looking um, to be the the center of of fame, if you will. Yeah, I honestly think it's
4: to live a life that is beyond themselves. I think I think we have become so narcissistic because we want our lives to mean something, and we think if we can get other people to notice us or to affirm our accomplishments, that we will be validated. And and Georgine, that's just not the way we were created. We were created not for ourselves, but for Him. And then, this is the beautiful part of it, though. We were given a job to do, and we were uh, entangled in his great purpose uh, for for uh, for our creation. You know, one of the main stories in the book is rooted around this Old Testament prophet, Habakkuk, who mm-hmm. you know, most of us don't pay much attention to. Uh, but Habakkuk was this irreverent prophet. He, he lived in times much like ours, where he looked around and he was frustrated with what he saw. And he did something that was pretty atypical for a prophet. He he actually confronted God with it and blamed God for all that was happening because God was absent. But I'm so fascinated, Georgie, by the, the response that Habakkuk got from God. God wasn't frustrated with Habakkuk for confronting him. In fact, he, he welcomed it. He tolerated it. But this is what was uh, so telling to me. God's response to Habakkuk was that my fame has been here all along. It's ready to help you address the cultural problems you see around you, but it's waiting on something. It's waiting on you because I have designed you to be the vehicle, to be the transport for my fame. And it's just it's it's just so amazing to think about this, Georgine, that he would create us and desire relationship with us so much that his purpose for addressing the cultural needs around us, I actually think it can be stayed if we aren't willing to step in and carry it because He's waiting to entangle it with us. So, you know, what greater privilege than being called into the into the center of that connection? Uh, but I really do think that's what will, will trigger a move of God through our land, is us being willing to carry it carry it forward.
3: Now, you write that we desperately need God's fame to roll through the land. What does that look like?
4: So I, I really think it, it, it is when we step into this idea of being the connective tissue Uh, for god's fame you know we we look through scripture and we see a lot of different commands georgine that we are supposed to step into we're supposed to love our neighbor we're supposed to confront injustice we're supposed to feed the hungry uh give drink to the thirsty uh visit the prisoner clothe the naked on down the line you can go with all of the commandments um but you know that only happens if if we carry it forward i think about Think about the the example of of visiting the prisoner. You know, the answer is that prisoner needs God's presence in his or her life, but they're not confronted with God's presence unless we visit them. The the hungry aren't fed unless we feed them. The thirsty don't have a drink unless we are the ones that carry a drink to them. So so honestly, uh, what it looks like for God's fame to roll through the land is when his people who are called to his purposes actually step forward and and start carrying it. So I I think just for so long, I have seen these things as detached. I have seen God's presence in the culture as one thing, and then my following Jesus Christ as another thing. And, Dordine, they're they're the same thing. I mean, if we want want a mighty move of God, it's going to require us being in and being the tangibility of His fame, being the connective tissue, so that a world that, you know, lives in a very tangible space is able to connect with something that might seem a little bit more intangible. Uh, if you don't know it in a personal way,
3: yeah, we revel in our culture today in likes and social media attention building platforms, managing our image. Do you think we are a nation of narcissists as a consequence? And uh, and what will it take for our attention, particularly those who are currently in the household of faith, to turn our attention away from? ourselves, and back to God so that we can see His fame roll out through the land.
4: Yeah, I think it's going to take that redefinition of what it means to be successful or what it means to acquire fame. And, you know, I would just maybe tell you a quick story, Georgie. We, mm-hmm. our, our family has the amazing privilege to provide uh, interim care for newborns who are headed towards adopted families. I'm actually... I'm actually doing this interview with you from out in my truck because we have a newborn inside, and I was afraid (laughs) that he was going to interrupt our interview. But the the reason I tell you that is when we were going through the training for this, uh, one of the things that we were taught is how critical it is during the early stages of a child's life to form the ability to bond, to form the ability to attach. And they did a study on three sets of children, children who had healthy attachment, children who uh, had suffered abuse, and then children who were neglected. And the amazing thing, Georgine, is they found out that the children who suffered abuse actually fared better than the children who were neglected. And the the reason for that was at least the children who had had endured abuse had the the grooves, the etchings in their brain that was formed from attachment. Now, it would have to heal over time, but the children who had been neglected didn't have those grooves, didn't have those etchings at all. And here was what the researcher told us when, when they were going through the training. She said attachment is what fuels all the other processes of the brain. And as I sat there in that secular training, Georgina, I thought, well, of course it does because our creator designed us to attach to him. And it's that attachment that fuels all of the other things that he would call us to do. So as you and I look to make a difference in our world and look to, you know, heal the broken culture that is around us, I I would just, caution us. Yes, there's a lot we're called to do, Georgine, but none of it will do any. Will be of any worth unless it's fueled by an attachment to the one who made us to step into those places. So I, I really think that's the key. Attach first, abide in him, hide yourself in him, and then he will fuel the ability to go out and address the needs of the culture.
3: Mm. You draw a distinction between the desire for fame and the, the longing to be known. What is the difference? And explain why that's important.
4: Sure, absolutely. So the desire to be famous, at least in that personal sense that we talked about at the beginning of this conversation, is is self-rooted, right? It's getting eyes to be drawn to us. It's attention onto ourself. It's self-adulation, uh, self-worship, if you will. Uh, being known by our creator. Is the exact reverse. It is. It is being vulnerable to Him. It is. It is having Him to know uh, every part of ourselves. It's. It's it's confessing to Him what it is, and then enabling Him to chart our path and enabling Him uh, to uh, honestly. I mean, even in even in the realm of notoriety and things, sometimes He will elevate us so that He will be glorified, and then sometimes He will hide us. Uh, for for a purpose. So, Durdine, I think it's really just submitting to a reversal of our natural human instincts. It's not an elevation of ourselves, but it's trying to aim every leverage, every influence, every platform that we might have uh, towards his glory and his fame and lifting his name high. I got to tell you, it's it's something that, especially in the political space that I work in, I'm I'm very much a work in process. Um, Mm. I I think we all are. But changing that intent internally and reminding myself each and every day why I'm here and what I should be aimed on, um, it it certainly has changed the way I look at even everyday tasks. Yeah,
3: we're going to take a quick break, but we will continue our conversation. Again, we're talking with Fan Bennett. My fame, his fame. We'll be back.
2: You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast is aired on 93 point9 Kpdq.
3: Continuing my conversation with Fan Bennett. his book is titled "My Fame: His Fame: Aiming Your Life and Influence Toward the Glory of God." The book is published by Thomas Nelson and Fan. You might recognize the name or the voice. He's the director of Government Affairs for the American Center for Law and Justice. He's also a regular on-air contributor to the daily syndicated radio broadcast J. Seculo Live, which is heard here on KPDQ. I'm just glad you carved out a little time sitting in your truck <laughs> to have a conversation <laughs> with us. <laughs> Appreciate Thank you it. for having me. <laughs> um, let's, let's talk about how um, most people are impacted when they gain the fame or influence that they're looking for, um, imagining that that is going to provide for them some sense of being known and, uh, I suppose, fulfillment
4: yeah, no, absolutely. I think when that happens, uh, Georgine, we often just get so desperate to keep it. We will do anything to keep the eyes of the people around us uh, on us. And it really changes our behavior, changes uh, the things that motivate us to make decisions. And one of the ways I talk about in the book on how we can gauge where we are succeeding in this is where we are setting our eyes. And what I, what I mean by that is if we're truly looking to our Savior, if we're truly looking to Jesus Christ to uh, to, to make our decisions and to, to base decisions based on how He is going to react, uh, then we're going to be willing to make decisions that are unpopular with the crowd that is around us, or with you know maybe out of step with the culture, or the culture will will view us as peculiar. But if our eyes are set on the crowd that is around us, like, like Pilate's eyes were when he was trying Jesus, we're going to make decisions that are based on how they are going to react, regardless if if they're consistent with God's word or regardless if they're consistent with God's call in our life. So I really think the challenge here, uh, whether you're, you know, as as famous as the president or, you know, working a a minimum wage job and feeling that you're anonymous, really the the requirement here is the same. Where are your eyes set and in whose eyes are you trying to find favor? And Georgina, if I think we get that that small uh, posture correct, then we're going to make decision ba- decisions based on the correct motivation, and it's going to carry us towards his fame and ultimately elevate his fame rather than our own.
3: It's always shocking when someone that is famous uh confesses in a moment of candor that they are lonely, that they're unfulfilled. And I suppose it shouldn't be surprising to us because it's consistent. But why do so many famous people suffer from loneliness? I'll never forget an interview with Johnny Carson, who was at the height of his uh, of his profession. Uh, in a, a moment of candor, talked about how um, he you know, he couldn't live with the, the wives that he had had and how his money had not fulfilled him and the emptiness that he experiences. Why is that the case? What does it tell us?
4: Well, I mean, there's an epidemic of loneliness yes. among the famous. There really is. The, the more famous you get, actually, um, by and large, the lonelier you get if you're not rooted in the right thing. And the, the example I use in the book, Jardine, is actually from the famous actress uh, Claire Dane. She said that fame doesn't end loneliness. And you would hear something very similar. You mentioned Johnny Carson from uh, from many of the famous, and and here's the the real reason why, because they're they're surrounded by people that have the adoration of the masses but as the desperation or the inclination uh, to retain that fame from the masses, from the crowd grows that's where their focus goes deeper and deeper and they're doing true relationships. I mean, uh, f- forget a relationship with the creator for a moment, which is what they were created to do. Uh, just genuine relationship with other people around them, those fade away because there's a, there's a fear of being vulnerable. So, um, look, I, I think it's most evident among the famous, but I think if, if, if many of us were truly honest about the condition of our heart and about the, uh, the way that we act, I think that we, are in many ways afflicted with some version of the same thing uh, because when we decline to root ourselves in him on a daily basis that we should, but here's, here's the hope in all of that. Again, the reason we were created was to commune and have relationship with the almighty God, the creator of the universe. So um, when we start to drift from that, uh, a refocus in that direction is going to solve a lot of those problems.
3: Mm. You're right that you believe God's fame is gathering, it's smoldering on the horizon. In spite of the polarization in our nation, do you believe revival is at hand? And what's facilitating that if, in fact, you do?
4: yeah, With all my heart, I really do. I, I really see people waking up to a desire to live for more than just, you know, whatever the next thing is, the next promotion, the next... A political campaign. I really do think we're on the edge of of carrying the next move of God to our culture. And I would tell you this, I think one of the catalysts is going to be that we as believers um, no longer settle for a narrow answer. And I would just give you a very quick example. In Genesis 18, uh, God is talking with Abraham about a punishment he's going to bring on the city of Sodom. Sodom deserved the punishment, deserved the destruction. And if I'm in Abraham's place, I probably agree with God. Let's go do this uh but not abraham abraham steps in and negotiates with god on behalf of the righteous remnant that might exist in, in sodom he goes back to god six different times mm-hmm. asking if god will save the city for a lower number and, and I would I would just tell you, uh, God didn't walk away from that negotiation until Abraham walked away, Georgine, and and that's what I see around me. I see believers stepping forward and being willing to go to God to advocate for a righteous remnant, um, and, and being less eager to see destruction rain down. Uh, I think that is going to facilitate the next mighty move of God. It's going to be through his people. God does wait for his people, uh, but God's eager to do it. And I see more and more around me stepping forward into it.
3: We see time and again throughout scripture that God delights in using the least expected people to accomplish his purposes. If we're looking for the next Billy Graham, if we're looking for, you know, a famous pastor to lead us, that's less likely than what we see throughout scripture. Um, Why do you think that is the case?
4: Uh, because he gets the glory. Yeah. Because he gets the glory when he uses people who are not qualified. And really, the truth is, when you step back from it, uh, we might think that, the, that that Billy Graham is more qualified than we are to lead that. But in, in truth, uh, God is just looking for willing vessels. He's looking for vessels that when he uses them, uh, we will point back. To his glory. So uh, I do think that it's more likely that maybe an, an obscure name would be named, but really that is just because uh, that obscure name might be uh, an easier nut to crack, if you will, for being willing to return that glory to God. I would I would tell the person listening, if you do hold the right, it doesn't make you less qualified, Georgine. He's just looking for hearts and vessels who are willing to point only back to him when God does use it. You know, if, if he just chooses to use me today, Um, and, And I allow that to elevate my name rather than his. Well, then that won't accomplish his purpose. So he's first looking for hearts that are yielded to him and aimed only for his glory. That's the vessel that he can use.
3: Amen. Once again, the book is titled My Fame, His Fame Aiming Your Life and Influence Toward the Glory of God. Fan Bennett, thank you so much for talking with us.
4: Thank you so much, Georgine. I really appreciate it.
3: Now go back in the house and take care of that baby. (laughs) (laughs) I will do it. I will do it. (laughs) Okay, (laughs) bye-bye.
2: You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. Is aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
3: Hey, we're back to wrap things up. Um, it's been an interesting day. Lots of news flashes, lots of news breaks. One of the things that uh, captured my attention earlier today was a headline that read, churches were eager to reopen. Now they're a major source of coronavirus cases. Um, again, I, well, the president some weeks ago demanded that America's uh, churches be allowed to reopen. New outbreaks of the virus are surging through churches across the country where services has resumed. Now, one assumes this uh, story is out of Pendleton. It's an uh, Oregon live story. It's assumed that churches are following the guidelines that have been prescribed for small gatherings. But the virus has infiltrated Sunday sermons, meetings of ministers and Christian youth camps in Colorado and Missouri, It struck churches that reopened cautiously with face masks and social distancing in the pews, as well as some that defied lockdowns and refused to heed new limits on the number of worshipers. Pastors and their families have tested positive, as have church ushers, front door greeters, hundreds of churchgoers. In Texas, about 50 people contracted the virus after a pastor told congregants uh, that— they could once again hug one another. In Florida, a teenage girl died last month after attending a youth party at her church. Now, it's interesting that they're pinpointing, I don't know if they have effective contact tracing or not, but they're pinpointing these incidences to church gatherings as opposed to the myriad other ways one might contract the virus, particularly among those who are uh, following the social distancing, mask-wearing guidelines that they have been given. But it goes on. More than 650 coronavirus cases have been linked to nearly 40 churches and religious events across the U.S. since the beginning of the pandemic, with many of them erupting over the last month as Americans resumed their pre-pandemic activities, according to the New York Times database. Uh, There are very few lines between protecting the health and safety of people and protecting the right of worship a county commissioner in northeastern Oregon, where the largest outbreak in the state has been traced to a Pentecostal church in a neighboring county, it's one we've been uh, walking very nervously all along. And while thousands of churches, synagogues, and mosques across the country have been meeting virtually or outside on lawns and in parking lots to protect their members from the virus, the right to hold services within houses of worship became a political battleground as the country crawled out of the lockdown this spring. In May, the president declared places of worship part of an essential service and threatened, though it was uncertain he had the power to do so, to override any governor's orders, keeping them closed. Well, it did make sense if you were allowing other gatherings under uh, prescribed conditions to uh, come together that churches should not have been excluded. But now as the virus rages through Texas, Arizona, other evangelical bastions of the South and West, some churches That fought to reopen are are being forced to close again and grapple with whether it was uh, even possible to worship together safely. Our churches have followed protocols. Masks go uh, in one door and out the other. Social distancing. Uh, One uh, bishop with the United Methodist Church in Louisiana says where three churches closed again over the last week and still people have tested positive. Now, keep in mind that these are people who aren't just going to church. These are people who are doing lots of other things um, as well. But it is a reminder that if we do uh, decide to exercise our religious freedom, we need to do so as safely as possible so the church does not become a a target of those who then point to the church as a source of the uh, pandemic exploding across the uh, the country. Now, again, I'm not sure one can pinpoint some of these cases specifically to the church, but this is what we're being told. Other congregations have remained defiant in the face of rising infections, saying the state rules limiting service sizes infringe on their constitutional right to worship. Some Christian groups objected to a new California rule that restricts singing in places of worship. In Nevada, the Calvary Chapel Dayton Valley is challenging state rules that cap religious gatherings at 50 people while allowing casinos and other reopening businesses to operate without similar limits. They're downplaying the role that religion plays in the lives of Americans and suggesting it's more important to go to the gym than to go to church. But as new cases and clusters have emerged in recent weeks from Florida to Kansas to Hawaii, public health experts have emphasized that even with social distancing, the virus can easily spread through the air when hymns are sung and sermons preached inside closed spaces. One of the world's first mass coronavirus outbreaks occurred in a secretive South Korean church. It's an ideal setting for transmission, they say, and it goes on uh, from there. So the challenge is how do we balance, and I appreciated that Pastor Rich Jones some weeks ago as a guest on the program talked a bit about this, how we balance uh, the directive that we are to meet together as uh, believers, but we are also to love our neighbor and to uh, follow the Directives of those in authority. Continue to pray that we do the right thing, that we uh, do not endanger ourselves, other fellow congregants, or our community. But at the same time, we do all that we can to worship God and to make Him known, to love one another, to love our neighbor, neighbor, and to make His name known. Hey, we're out of time. Need to wrap things up. I have a procedure tomorrow. Okay, I'm having a colonoscopy. It's a rite of passage. So I will be out (laughs) tomorrow, but back on Friday. All things uh, being equal. So I look forward to, uh, to joining you live on Friday. I want to thank James Blind for producing Clark Hilton Engineering, Dan Rice for the use of his office, and thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night.
2: Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice show and like us on Facebook.